everybody. Welcome to uh, episode 54 of Econ360. That's the only podcast in the world that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. We have a humdinger of a show for you this week, uh, I think. I don't actually know. Uh, I just got back from vacation. I have no idea what's going on. But my name's Tom Breen. Joining me as always are my colleagues Maxine Filivong. Hello. Julie Bartuka. Hey. Ken Best. Behind the board. Yes. And as always, I'm sure there's some spectacular stuff heading your way. <laughs> Like, I don't know, news. We have some news, right? Yes. Of course we have news. What's going on? News people. What's going on in the news world, Ken? Well, you may recall we've had Ryan Watson of our Human Development Family Sciences Department here at UConn in talking and reporting on some of the national information he's developed on LGBTQ teenagers. And the latest report from that study is out, and it shows that a supportive community – reduces the possibility of substance abuse by sexual minority youth. And that's important because there are a lot of programs in communities around the country and on campuses around the country, and that helps a great deal in the physical and social activities that cause some of the problems that lead to substance abuse. He says this study extends the current body of knowledge that examines and explains differences in substance use behaviors among sexual minority adolescents to include environmental factors such as school and community climate. Essentially, a variety of community LGBTQ events such as pride may create a climate of greater acceptance and supportiveness that is associated with lower odds of substance abuse. Important stuff. Julie, what's going on? Huskython happened a couple weeks back now and raised a record $1,520,234.98 to benefit Connecticut Children's Medical Center. The annual 18-hour dance marathon topped the previous record of more than $1.3 million, which was from last year. More than 3,300 students on over 100 teams were part of the event, which was held in Hugh S. Greer Fieldhouse. And Huskython has actually multiplied its fundraising 100 times over since its first event back in the year 2000. Very nice work, everyone. I understand uh, the President Katsileas was there cutting a rug, as I Dancing, think the young people say. probably very... Tripping the light fantastic. Is that what the young people oh say, Maxine? Yes. <laughs> that is what they say. Good. Glad we yes. got that. Awesome. Uh, well, congratulations, everyone. That's a great cause. And uh, yeah, Husky Town's a very cool thing that happens here. So uh, this will be new for me, too, because I have no idea what's what's going to be on <laughs> the show this week. So no great segues. No great segues. Unless it's about cluelessness. Julie, is your story about cluelessness? No, it's not. It's actually about having a clue about what's going on with the environment. Wow. All right. Yes. It's about compost, but it's really about a lot more than that. We hear a lot here at UConn, especially in this marketing and communications office, about how UConn undergraduates are able to get funding to do their own research and community projects. And sometimes that might sound like it's kind of a really big, intimidating thing. But a lot of the time, these types of projects and, you know, all projects that change the world in some way come from something that people see in their lives that they just want to fix. And they see a simple way it can be done. They need some resources. So I talked to Becky Feldman, who is a junior civil engineering major who grew up composting food waste. And once she started living in a non-campus apartment at UConn, she realized that there was no way for students here to do that. Dining services has composting, but students couldn't do their own. So Feldman was awarded a UConn Co-op Legacy Fellowship Change Grant, which provides undergrads up to $2,000 for their student-led social change projects. And she launched a pilot composting program called Food to Fuel for students living in Hilltop Apartments. We talked about the actual process of getting the grant, setting up the project, how it works, why it's important, and what she hopes happens with it in the future. I moved into Hilltop Apartments last fall. It's my first year in apartment housing. I used to live in NextGen. 
And pretty much the first thing I noticed, I'm like, where's my compost bin? Like, I grew up, you know, I was privileged. I was on 12 acres of land. And we always composted for our chickens and for our gardens. And at the university, we're all living in apartments. We're learning these, like, lifestyle habits that we're going to continue on to the rest of our lives. And I know one I always wanted to continue on was personally composting, so I didn't see it. So I'm like, okay, how can I get this here now? It was actually Wawa. Wawa recommended it to me, and I reached out to Melissa Berkey, who's up in the Office of Undergraduate Research, and I had to find a mentor. That that was tough because I... It's not exactly civil engineering related, but Julia, the farm manager, I got in touch with her outside of one of the pop-up farmer's markets outside of the library last fall, and we hit it off. We got to talking, and she was happy to take me on and be my mentor for the grant. So the grant application was due, I think, the end of September. So that was just some write-ups of, you know, the budget and whatnot. It's up to $2,000. And a lot of talking about logistics, how is it going to work, how can we make this the most convenient it possibly can be so students use it. So that was the big thing. You know, if if they have to trek their compost bin across campus, like, they're not going to do it. I was actually right about to take one of my exams, and I saw that I got the grant in, like, mid-October, right around my birthday. So that was a great birthday present. And then from there, there's a lot of logistics talks. I sat down with Res Life and Dining Services, who were super helpful and on board from the start. Some facilities conversations, some coordination with Willie Waste, and then a lot of just, okay, what bins am I going to use? They have to be dishwasher safe for students. And pretty much how is the compost, how is the food waste going to get from Hilltop Apartments to its end goal, which ideally would be someplace on campus, but I'm kind of piggybacking off of the dining services route. They take their food waste down to Quantum Biopower and it goes into this anaerobic digester and creates methane, which powers local communities in compost, soil, and fertilizer as well. So it's more sustainable than right now. It would be going in the incinerator. We were able to get a food waste bin in, in just one so far, a good start in the center of Hilltop Apartments outside of Barrett. And Willy Waste bought these new trucks. I say that they bought it for me, but really, like, <laughs> they bought it for, for the program for everyone. So all of the dining halls now have smaller we call them like kind of like curbside pickup, like a normal trash bin. So it, that makes it more feasible for one day for this to be everywhere because they have the truck to pick those up. So right now there's only one in the middle of Hilltop Apartments and mm-hmm. everyone can bring. They have small bins that you provide. Yes. Um, so can everyone have those for their apartment? How does that work? Mm-hmm. So it's one bin per apartment. And the bin is a one gallon little blue U-line bin. It's just a plastic pail. It's nothing really special. We had looked into the carbon filters and all that, but then you have to upkeep them and change them. So our little bin has a sticker on the front that says yes and no, like what goes in, what doesn't, because I understand not everybody grew up like I did and not everyone knows how to compost. From there, I had a kickoff event. I have some pickup times and dates, and then personally people reach out to me like, oh, I couldn't make it. Can I come grab a bin? I'm like, sure, I got them in my car. (laughs) So (laughs) people just pick them up when they can, one per apartment. I have them sign up. Um, There's a Google form, and then also pretty easy bin care agreement, just saying like, oh, I'll take care of this and due diligence. You know, if my roommates are into it, I'll be respectful and I'll return it as is. I I have more to give out. Not all apartments are signed up. I do have about 60 participating, but the bin is about a little more than half full every week before it's picked up. Other than growing up doing this and just knowing this was something you wanted to do, why is this such an important issue to you? Food waste is more than just like a banana going bad on the counter. 
you're wasting money when you're buying all this food and just not being eaten. And that's lost nutrition or food insecurity, as we've been discussing, is huge on campus and in the world. There's all these really gross statistics of, like, all the food that we waste could feed, like, the whole world twice over and end hunger. The emissions that f food is associated with is about 10% of all greenhouse gases. So that's like transportation to and from the grocery store. You know, I buy raspberries. They are my favorite food. I buy them during the winter. I have no idea where they're coming from, how far away they've come, how much nutrition was lost on the way. So many greenhouse gases are being put into just getting them to me. And I try to appreciate them as much as I can. So it's more than just going to the incinerator. There's a lot more to it. And I've always been really passionate about the environment. When I was younger, I would always say, oh, I want to save the world. I want to save the world. And I still, like, no one really knows how. I think that in civil engineering, like, through land development, sustainable land development and urban development, that's kind of how I found my path. What are your hopes for this project after this first semester? I would like, ideally, as many people that want to sign up to sign up. That's why it's voluntary, because you want people to want to do it. And the signing up, you know, entails a free bin. And also we have this cute little rewards program. So if you send me a picture of you dumping out the bin, then you get entered every week into a raffle to win a gift card to Dunkin' for you or your roommates, depending on, you know, who does the, the food waste. I, I've often heard the statistic that people feel the most impactful on the climate crisis when they recycle, you know, just like physically throwing a water bottle in the recycling bin. But there's so many more like little things, little changes we can make that I think are much more impactful. And I think this is one of them. I just want this to be successful and get students talking around campus about food waste, which we have been like dining services brings it up. The environmental conversation has been going for a while, which is really great in terms of this specifically. To prove to, I don't know who it will be, dining services or res life, I need to prove to someone that this is a successful project that students want and need. And then from there, it'll have to be taken on by someone. I, I want this to be everywhere in all the on-campus apartments. I think that every office should have three bins, compost, recycling, and trash. I don't see why not. To me, that's simple, really. Very interesting stuff. Because <laughs> you heard it right here in the studio. Yeah, it's all new to me. It is. Becky's story is a great example also of how students can use the connections they have and make other connections on campus to make change happen. She talked about how she connected with Spring Valley student farm manager Julie Cartabiano at the pop-up farmer's market on Fairfield Way. And she also mentioned Wawa as the person who connected her with the grant program. And that's Wawa Gateru, Hunt's First Road Scholar, Truman Scholar, Udall Scholar, who we know is very involved in social change projects on campus, who she went to high school with. Students who are interested in getting a compost bin for their Department can email Rebecca.Feldman, F-E-L-D-M-A-N, at UConn.edu. Very nice. Ken? Would you think that a construction project on campus would lead to an art exhibit? I wouldn't, but maybe it did. It did. People on South Campus may have noticed the new building that's almost, it's finished, except for moving in and touching up the new Fine Arts Production Center, where our set design and technology for the Connected Repertory Theater and the Jorgensen Center uh, will be taking place. Much long-needed facility. When that was being built, 
they needed to change the parking because that was on a former parking lot. And so as a result, faculty in music and theater had to walk through the art building in order to get to their building. Performance and acting emeritus professor Dale A.J. Rose was walking by the contemporary art galleries and ran into his old friend Barry Rosenberg, who was the director of the galleries. And they hadn't seen each other for a while because they were doing their own thing, and that happens. So they got to talking, and Professor Rose mentioned that he was a fan of Robert Crumb, who was – course, among the most prolific of the underground comic artists of the 1960s and 70s. Turns out he had a collection of Crumb's work. And so Professor uh, Rosenberg said, as a matter of fact, there's an exhibit of his work in New York City. And so, of course, Professor Rose went down and checked it out. So he came back. He said, I think I have a lot of good stuff like that myself. So they talked about it. He went and saw it. And R. Crumb, Drawings, Prints, and Books, became the exhibit for the Contemporary Art Galleries, and it's been getting a lot of attention. Now, the exhibit is still on display until March 6th, so you have to get there very soon. You can see Fritz the Cat, Mr. Natural, the Keep On Trucking guys, and most importantly, Big Brother and the Holding Company's Cheap Thrills album. What drew you to Robert Crumb's work initially? Because... You've collected a fair amount of material, but at some point you had to be sparked with interest in his work. I saw some of his stuff when I was visiting some friends out in Berkeley in 67. Saw a piece in, in the underground uh, paper, uh, the Berkeley Press, that uh, had a slight interview with him about giving up his job as a writer for American Greeting Cards and came out to California to express himself for little or no money. And I kind of laughed that off. When I went back to New York, there, there was in the East Village Other. And I went, oh, this stuff, it's early Fritz the Cat. This is interesting. And then saw stuff in Chicago at the Chicago Seed, another underground paper. And then when I came back to New York, I just was like, wow, this stuff is everywhere. Well, who is this person? What is he doing? And, and I liked the philosophy. I liked the kind of stuff that was social political and it interested me in a way that I was so interested by Dylan. I was interested growing up in Detroit, Marvin Gaye, the things that were being said through song. And then later in my life, The Boss, uh, because his lyrics just seemed to be on a parallel track with my life. And I found that Crumb was on that parallel track. Uh, so I started collecting the comics. And then Pantographics in Seattle started producing a few prints, uh, limited edition prints. And I went, wow, this is, I want this. And so I started collecting a few pieces that interested me. And in 1999, um, I have to say that uh, my graduate class at University of Missouri, Kansas City, bought me the Art of Art Crumb, which was a big coffee table book, because they said, we know you're interested in this, and we want you to stay interested in it. And I did start collecting pieces. One of the first pieces that just really reached me was the, the, the piece called uh, The Adventures of Art, Art Crumb Himself. It just excited me because it was warm and funny, 
And then I knew the comic in which, in fact, he goes outside and all sorts of disasters happen to him. You know, he ends, throws a, ends up throwing a Molokov cocktail at some, un, at some kind of church and everything. So, and then he says, I should stay home. I should stay home. Well, what you described to me is Crum as a social commentator through his artwork – which was not uncommon during that time that he was doing most of that work in the 1960s and early 1970s, given what was going on in the United States mm-hmm. and in society in general. We had the Vietnam War going on, the civil rights movement, just the entire atmosphere in the country, uh, not unlike today, yeah. which is divided in, in many ways. And he was one of the prominent social critics as a cartoonist in the underground press, which it came and went in that 10, 15-year period. Right, which also is interesting that of the, of the so many comics that were, came out at that time and none of them made any money except Zap. Zap is the only one that actually made money of the 16 issues that they did. Well, was it partly because of the fact that Crumb was working prominently in those journals, but more importantly, he connected with the music of the time illustrating uh, the cover of Big Brother and the Holding Company, uh, which, of course, was where Janis Joplin originated. And then uh, the Keep on Truckin' poster was immediately connected with the Grateful Dead. The cult of the jam band really began with them, and they just performed endlessly. Uh, I did have the album cover, and then I loved the, the idea of what was the original artwork for the cover that he did of Janis Joplin, just a close-up with music flying out of her face and everything. She loathed it and said, you have overnight to do another cover I go somewhere else. Well, he was absolutely broke. He stayed up all night and created that iconic cover for Jeep, Cheap Thrills. He had a twisted sense of humor. Uh, he, I he went. That. <laughs> he went into dark places. Uh, there was an element of pornography in some of the stuff that he did. So he was really out there mm-hmm. as you know, as a creative artist, but he still thrived no matter what he did. Talk a little bit about how he managed to survive through all of that because many artists come from a dark place and they express themselves through their art. One of the things that, that helped him uh, thrive or survive is he kept growing. So he didn't just stay as a comic illustrator or creator there. He started to broaden um, his uh, palette of, of doing uh, works of uh, Brokowski. He would illustrate his works, his poems, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, was becoming known as a serious illustrator. By the late 80s, his flame had sort of flickered out and people were not interested because of things like keep on trucking and and he he became in uh known as so, it was also commercial stuff cards da 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 this is stickers and everything uh which he to this day loathes in saying that if he wishes that he hadn't become so famous at such a young age i mean when he did the album cover for Janis Joplin he was like 24 years old uh, and so uh, it, it's a, it was amazing. But then uh, it was like nobody wanted our crumb until the documentary came out in 91. Right, which I remember. Crumb. And when that came out, suddenly people were, who is this person? And then 
he started a whole new world of work that had to do with more fine arts illustrations, etc. In, in fact, if you look at his style, which is a almost a classical draftsman kind of approach, in reality, yes, he can caricature and, and with the best of them as a cartoonist, satirist. But he's a very fine artist. Yep. And his crosshatch technique harkens back to the Renaissance days of pen and ink, the, the chiaroscuro, the, the dark and the light shadows. But adding color instead of just doing black and white mm -hmm. work is kind of – Draws you in because you you look at it and say, hmm, that yeah, that's that's you can recognize who that is. He has said in uh, various articles or interviews that uh, that style came about uh, in the days when it was legal to take uh, LSD, and after a couple of trips, his artistic style came to the forefront along with many of his iconic characters. What you're saying about his style does have references back to some classical illustrations, and he built on it in a wonderful way that gave depth to the kind of illustrations he was doing. It's always different when you see what you've had at your home, the way that you had it presented, versus in a gallery. What, 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 what are your thoughts having well, seen what Barry is doing? Because Barry does a very interesting job with all of his work. Let's put it this way. It's the first time I've seen everything on a wall, or at least the pieces that uh, he has chosen on a wall, because I can't fit everything I have on my walls at home. So I have them stacked up. So it's kind of joyous, it's kind of giddy to see the pieces together like they're a family. Folks have to get there because the exhibit closes on March 6th. Very soon. Make a trip. In fact, I heard today someone came from Arizona to watch, to see it. Very nice. I don't have a Tom's History Corner this week because I was I was in a foreign country. He was learning about until just now, far away history. Until just now. I want to talk about Yukon Urban Legends because when I was in the foreign country of Ireland, I was at Trinity College briefly. Not studying. I was just there uh, on a tour. And the tour guide talked about some things that are sort of urban legends about Trinity College that sounded a lot like UConn urban legends. And I started to think that, like, probably colleges around the country and around the world, in fact, have very similar legends, mm -hmm. like a statue or a bell or something that's supposed to ring or make noise when a virgin walks by and it never does. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> that's, a, that's a thing at Trinity and also a thing at UNC. Very common legend about libraries being built, but not the weight of the books yes, being factored into that it. that was a big one here. It's um, still a big one, I think. Yeah, it's also at a lot of other universities, too. It's yeah. a pretty common trope in the world of urban legends. What are some urban legends about UConn? Or what are some stories, some folklore about UConn that you've God. heard? Maxine, I'm going to start with you. The only thing I can think of off top of my head is that you can't walk in the seal. Yes. Oh, so you don't graduate in four years? Yes. I have walked in the seal, and I am not graduating in four years. <laughs> <laughs> true. The legends are true. Self-fulfilling prophecy. The legends are true. Yeah, that's the seal in Fairfield Way, which wasn't there when I was an undergrad, because Fairfield oh. Way was like an actual road. Yeah. So that's a newer one. The only thing I can think of is the book thing, the, the library thing. thing. What about rubbing Jonathan's nose oh, yeah. for luck? Yeah. I didn't think of that as an urban legend, more of a superstition. Yep. Yep. We got some hauntings, some reputed hauntings. Those I didn't really know about until you told me, though. So oh. I don't know if that's a student thing. There's definitely one in, uh, I think it's Alumni Quadrangle that, like, is a student thing. There's one room in Alumni. Like, the Harvard Kern is on oh. a story about it. Like, it's supposedly. Haunted room. Mysterious chills people feel in the room, okay. things like that. 
I know that some people think there's an urban legend that there's a Jonathan dog mascot buried on campus, but that's not an urban legend. No, there's, there's at least two. Yeah. Like the true. suit or the dog? No, the dog. Yeah, we buried the suit. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Let's do suit, it. Suit usually gets put in the trash. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, hey, they busted out the old suit at the uh, Gamble anniversary game a couple weeks ago. We should have it preserved under glass like it's Lennon. We should just say it's like a, it's like a Jonathan mummy. Yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, like a- fortunately, we had it because we did the mascot exhibit at the Puppet Museum, That's right. Museum a couple of years ago, and That's we right. had the original suit. The creepy-looking one? There's actually a Viking funeral every time. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. They give yeah, they put it out like, in, a, in a mirror lake and just set it on fire. It's, oh, it's very moving. Yeah, I know. Jonathan, one is buried uh, on the corner of 195 in yes. North Eagleville. There's a plaque. It's right by the sign, right? Yep. Yeah. But then there's a Jonathan. There's another Jonathan buried near the water towers, and I don't think mm. there's a, a marker. And I don't. The I don't know which tomb I, of the unknown Jonathan. That might be Jonathan the fifth, but I could be wrong about that. Which one was hit by a car? The, a lot of them were hit by cars. <laughs> <laughs> like, so sad. Jonathan one was hit by a car. How many times have we talked about Jonathan's being hit by cars on this I know. podcast? Were you the Jonathan correspondent? I know. Do we have any other urban legends that you kind of know of? This is see. I really want to get into this because I once dated a woman who had gone to Bryn Mawr. Yeah. And like they have a million. Mm-hmm. They have all kinds of bizarre legendary and lore and things. And I always felt like uh, I missed out on that, certainly. I feel like it's like a public university. It's not as like. Yeah, but UNC has a lot of it too. Yeah, and they're public university. That's true. Probably UVA does as well. Those fancy pants public universities down, down south. Down south, yeah. You know what? The, this, is, this is a terrible. I don't know if this will make it the cut. But the other day, have you ever heard the Ladasha story? No. So. This was something when I was in college, someone was like, oh, this girl I know worked at a school and there was a student and her name was spelled L-A hyphen A. And she's like, what the heck is that? And then the mom's like, it's Ladasha. And this is big joke. And then my grandmother told me that her friend's daughter is a nurse and someone named their baby Ladasha. And you look it up on Snopes and it's like there's no record of anyone ever anywhere named Ladasha. But it always comes in this like someone I know knew this person that this happened to. This is very real. That's the biggest urban legend I can remember. But my grandmother even told me about it. It's amazing. It's it's weird when someone tells you something you know is an urban legend. Yeah, I did. I pulled it up on Snopes and I was like, this is not real. No, no social security record anywhere has that name the secret societies is the only thing i ever heard yeah uh, and we know that at least one of them existed here. yeah yep that's right the druids druids that's right the druids there's also a lot of talk about the tunnels under yukon that, those are real there are utility tunnels under yukon you were supposed to take me to those once and you I've, never, I, well, never I, have. I, I haven't been myself okay i think my window opportunity closed in the tunnels and there's that room with all the oh, like taxidermy yes that's really cool yeah where's that that is a storage facility on the other side of Horse Barn Hill. We had a, we still have a Museum of the Natural History. History, but they don't have a permanent facility, but they have a collection. And so there's this room that's like full of taxidermied animals from all over the world. And I found out about this because I have a friend who's a Yukon Fire Department. They got a call that there was a smoke alarm going off. And there, there had been, I think, a fire, like a small fire in this building. They didn't know what it was, but they opened the door and suddenly there's like wildebeest <laughs> and like antelope everywhere. And they're like, what, what is this? What have we stumbled on? Oh, my gosh. Oh, there, there is a actual it's – not, it's not an urban legend. It's an actual room at Yale School of Medicine. It's called the Brain Room. Ooh. It's where in the early days of, of neurosurgery – the brains were removed and put in jars, like in the Frankenstein mm-hmm. story. And so there's rooms with with brains on there for study, 
for medical purposes I'm for sure research. We have plenty of interesting things like that. It just reminds me of your hidden Yukon magazine story. Yeah. Getting away from urban legends and into just like weird, weird stuff, stuff you didn't know existed. I bet Yale campus. has a lot because they've been around forever. Mm-hmm. And it's a rite of passage for the medical school students to visit there in their first year. Sure. My friend who was dating someone at the medical school was shown around that brain room and it was really weird. That sounds pretty weird. What's going on down there at Yale? <laughs> What, what's up with you folks? This down has there? become a Yale disparagement. No, no, we never. They're they're perfectly happy with the Cotton Mather founded university down there. Oh my god, he did. <laughs> well, we did become the state's uh, flagship institution. So they're Yale. Yeah, take that. They wanted it. They didn't get it. Bet, bet you regret going to Yale now. <laughs> it's all, with all your future Supreme Court justice classmates. <laughs> Well, this has gone. We should probably wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm impressed by you, Tom. I want to put this out. Nothing prepared. uh, Nothing prepared. I want to put this out to listeners, though. Those of you who have not switched off in anger over our Yale bashing, (laughs) if you if you can think of a UConn urban legend or just something weird that you've always heard about UConn, because there are weird stories that are true, Mm -hmm. like the missing nuclear reactor. Go ahead and just message us on Twitter. We're at UConn Podcast. Let us know. I'd love to hear what kind of strange stories you've heard about UConn or questions you've had if you wondered if it's true or not. Like. You know, like if a celebrity went here or something. There's always like Meg stories Ryan. like that. Yeah, yeah, things like that that people always ask about. Judy Collins. Someone who actually graduated, not just oh, sat in the class. Oh, gosh. Poor Meg Ryan. Yeah. Tony Todd also was a briefly UConn student. I don't know who that is. He was the actor who most famously in the role of the Candyman, the uh, horror film. Gotcha. He was on Star Trek yeah. a couple times. Yeah, he's great. Tony cool. Todd. Tony Todd. He's a good follow on Twitter. Speaking of Twitter... <laughs> Maxine, is there anything you want people to know? <laughs> yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Maxine Philavong. How's things at the internship? It's fun. Yeah? I'm having a good time. I got to answer phones for the talk show. Nice. So I got to screen callers. All right. It was fun. Cool. Pretty cool. Julie, is there anything you want people to know? I'm at Julie Bartuka, and UConn Magazine's latest issue is up on magazine.uconn.edu and hitting mailboxes. And Ken was going to talk about that, I think, maybe. I don't, didn't need to. Yep. I stole it from you. Sorry. Ken? Really cool cover. Other than the magazine, Ken, what's going on? Well, today.uconn.edu and a sporadic couple of weeks on WHUS because of baseball preemptions. The baseball season has begun. Our team is traveling to the warm weather, and we air all those games on 917 WHUS, UConn's sound alternative. Go Huskies. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening, and uh, send us those urban legends. Bye.